Non, c'est ce que je disais. Oui, moi, c'est bâté, c'est de la blague. Après tout, tout est beau. Il n'y a qu'à s'intéresser aux choses et les trouver belles. The time has come. Catherine Bigelow! This and some of the other nice things that have happened to me in the last couple of days may turn me into some sort of hopeful optimist and ruin my whole life. Spoil? <laughs> Did he spoil me? I remember quite clearly, it was 1946, and I was four years old, my mother took me to see King Vidor's Duel in the Sun. Al film italiano Deserto Rosso di Michelangelo. Michelangelo Antonioni. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. It's just that all men are sure it never happened to them, and most women at one time or another have done it, so you do the math. Three artists. In the presentation of the Palm d'Or, Adele, Leia, and Abdel Abdel Kinshi. Y'all have to. Aquí el lado de Lily Joy. Estoy vino. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 28 of the Filmotomy podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing the history of the B movie, and we'll also be discussing uh, my personal favourite B movie, which is Detour. Um, I'm your host, B Garner, and today I'm joined by uh, Rob. Hi there. And I'm also joined by Steve. Hello there. And uh, it's a bit of a return for Steve. We haven't seen much of you about, have we, for a while? Where have you been? Hiding. <laughs> yeah, it was like me accusing you of something. Where have you been? <laughs> Where is he? Watching movies and writing. <laughs> Perfect. Well, as long as you've been doing that, that well, you know, that's the main thing. So um, I just wanted to do something. You know, we've been doing a bit of stuff on can recently and um we've got lots of stuff to, to, we're coming up on the site about it so i thought this might be a, a nice breather for people and also discuss something that you know i don't think many people are really aware of what the b movie is do you guys know much about the history of b movies yeah i mean i like i like a lot of what has come out of the b movie like you know some of the some of the more um sort of visually stunning movies of the 70s i feel like come out of the b movie whether they were westerns or you know neo noirs or you know certainly like chinatown or even something like dog day afternoon comes out of the the you know desperation of you know film noir so i i'm a really big fan of the b movie and even you know some of the better horror movies you know horror was sort of a malign genre uh, back in the day so uh, certainly all of that comes out of the b movie Many of the 70s pioneers were, all got their start working for Roger Corman, American yes, International. Yeah. Um, was it... Absolutely shit movies, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wasn't um, Marty Scorsese? Scorsese was one. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, Peter Bond. But like Sam Peckinpah. Yeah, like Sam Peckinpah yeah. comes out of that milieu of, of the B-movie, and except you know, just his were like super violent. Cause, and you know, television you don't have... spell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you don't have the you know the Hayes Code to worry about anymore. <laughs> so there's not a lot of difference between uh, '50s television and B movies. No, right, and, and that uh, was really good in this in this the one that we watched. Yeah, and a lot of um, B movies ended up onto TV during that sort of period because I guess they were quite cheap to to buy and um, you know uh, to Produce. pick up. 
yeah, produce. So, you know, um, if you wanted to put something on TV, you could just put on, I don't know, some sort of creature feature made in, mm-hmm. <laughs> made on the back lots, you know. Um, over, that's why sort of um, films from Ed Wood um, ended up on TV and, you know, influenced like the likes of Tim Burton's work because, mm-hmm. you know, they were growing... Uh, growing up during that time and they could watch those films you know, despite them being absolutely awful they found new life on, on TV you know, for kids who were sort of growing up during that time so, Well, it's funny because um, the last year's Best Picture winner, The Shape of Water basically is a B-movie pe- B um, I mean, it's, you know it's it's we're, we're well past that kind of um, I feel like period, but uh, you know, it, it very much matches a lot of those tropes. And I was thinking about this too, that Edward Scissorhands is, was basically the shape of water, you know, like close to 30 years ago. And Tim Burton, like you were just talking, like you were just saying, you know, come was heavily influenced by people like Ed Wood. So I think you can see that sort of, uh, you know, development or, or, uh, evolution over time. Near the airport at desert center, I pulled up for water. Before we sort of go into Detour, which is a sort of case study of a B-movie, and sort of uh, analyse it and discuss how it's a B-movie and why it's different from other B-movies as well, um, introduction um, into what I mean by the term B-movie. I hope people at home might have some indication of what I'm talking about. Well... You know, I'm sure this is very disconcerting. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit of a surprise to me. I mean, you're a bee. Yeah, yeah. I am a bee, and, uh, you know, I'm not supposed to be doing this. The, the, the bee one, movie. The one with the talking bee and who falls in love yeah. with a human. See, you know, that, yeah, that's, that sounds like it should be an actual bee movie from the 1950s when I say it out loud. That was a little weird. I'm talking to a bee. Yeah. Talking to a bee. Anyway. And the bee is talking to me. Um, I just want you to know that I'm grateful, and I'm, I'm going to leave now. Um, so, the bee feature came out um, sort of as Hollywood was developing the studio system. Usually, what would happen would be like you would have you know a, a feature, which would be your sort of main selling point. But then, before then, you would have uh, a second picture. Um, which would be the B-movie, which was normally a a genre pick. Um, We've already sort of gone into describing the science fiction films, the creature features, but um, in the 30s and 40s, a lot were were the gangster films. And I think the reason that the B-feature was kind of big was the fact that they they were offered on a, a serial sort of thing, so you would have to think characters are reappearing so this is often the western genre so you would like have Billy the Kid Hopalong Cassidy um, where Roy Rogers. yeah and these are regular mm-hmm. films that would be shown um, so whenever people went to the cinema they would see these and these are sort of like before television before we had um, TV series and everything so uh, and it was kind of a way for people to get their money's worth 
So, you know, you could spend like a whole afternoon in, in a theatre. and I guess, Yeah, because not only would you have the B feature, you would have newsreel, cartoons. Yeah. Previews. Yeah, it sounds like my idea of heaven. Those guys out in Hollywood don't know the real thing when it's right in front of them. And, and it's no home entertainment other than radio. Yeah, the yeah. Radio. Exactly. I mean, and, people would go two, three times a week so and splurge by spending a quarter. Oh, my God. That's so expensive. I remember spending 75 cents. <laughs> Whoa. Um, how much is the cinema ticket nowadays? $10, basically. $10. 10 American dollars. 10 whole American dollars. <laughs> yeah, I can go up to 15 here. Jeez. It's not really worth it as well, considering films, you know, the release dates between films sort of from the theatre to DVD and, you know, video on demand is getting shorter and shorter. Well, in fact, you know, lots of films now get released, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, iTunes and uh, or on Netflix on the same day that they also get shown in theatres. So... How far are you going? How far are you going? That took me by surprise, and I turned my head to look her over. She was facing straight ahead, so I couldn't see her eyes. But she was young, not more than 24. Man, she looked as if she'd just been thrown off the crummiest freight train in the world. Anyway, back to the B feature. So, um, often these sort of movies were made quite cheaply. Um, they weren't, didn't really have the budgets of the same uh, as the A feature, and they were sort of shot on leftover set pieces and stuffs, and they didn't really have the same sort of film stars attached to them. But uh, actually, quite a f- as we discussed earlier about directors, quite a few film stars um, began in B pictures such as um, well I was surprised to find that John Wayne started in B pictures uh, and Jack Nicholson he famously started oh yes with Corman yeah, yeah. in the was it Little Shop uh, of Horrors Killer Tomatoes, Killer Tomatoes and a couple others yeah yeah I, I think it's Little Shop of Horrors he plays like the uh, patient oh, the dental yeah. patient <laughs> which... Steve McQueen in The Blob yeah I, that, again, that was another surprise to me to to find out that I, these stars began. Yeah, I feel like um, a couple. I mean, <clears throat> for instance, John Wayne and Steve McQueen. I mean, are are two of like the when you think of like you know uh, manly leading men of of you know movie history. I mean, that they they very are very prominent, and I think a lot of people's minds. Um, but those the two things that they were known for, whether you know Steve McQueen sort of uh, action and like car chases, and John Wayne for the western. Um, I mean, both of those, uh, the material for both of those types of movies, you know, really comes out of the B genre. It, it's not it's not that surprising to me, but um, but it may maybe it is also surprising just because they're so prominent in people's minds throughout history as like stars. Yeah. It's a training. It's, it was a training ground. It's, uh, people don't start at the top <clears throat> like they do now. That's the greatest cock and bull story I ever heard. Once they were packaged, yeah. Once their type was determined, which was very difficult to break out of. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah. But, but it's quite interesting to think that that's how, um, how it works. But 
uh, it just goes to show how organized the studio system was and how they had everything you know planned out and how they could mm-hmm. waddle uh, the actors and the you know begin their careers based on how you know putting them into dozens of different smaller pictures and these um, B films only had really like a short run time mostly sort of less than 70 minutes also mm-hmm. um, I think Detour did anyone get down the run time for Detour? Yeah I think it was uh, 67 minutes yeah, yeah, 67, yeah, 107. <laughs> ah, that's so short. Now, uh, seven minutes, yeah. And considering, like, how much happens in that picture, quite, like, it doesn't really have moments where it just stops and, catch, you know, so you can catch your breath. It's almost, like, sort of relentless. It's just, like, keeps going, keeps going, and then, uh, and then it ends. And I was like, what? I can't end. I want more. <laughs> you know, it kind of reminded me, it had a little bit of like psycho in it for me just because of the, you know, she's when she's driving on the road or whatever. But mm. um, yeah, it, I, I don't, I was very, I was actually very taken with it and how effective it's, uh, it's storytelling was. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I, I could definitely tell <laughs> that they were limited on, you know, sets and money yeah. and, uh, we saw I will say this gas station several editing. times. <laughs> yeah, editing was a, was a bit rough, but you know, again, it was. I still thought it was a very effective story it told. And the director is quite a cult director, Elmer yeah, Ulmer. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Did you ever see Black Cat with Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff? I've heard of it. I haven't actually okay. seen it. Yeah, that's the same director. Ah. Okay, but uh, yeah, we. I was looking up about the um, the writer of um, Detour, which was Martin mm-hmm. Goldsmith, and he was sort of basically a B movie writer. So, you know, these people could actually quite, you know, make quite good careers out of it, even though, oh, yeah. um, you know, they're not as recognised as say, you know, other film noir writers. But they were still making the films, and they're still. I think Detour's gone on to have uh, festivals and a cult following to it. And... Why should I believe you? You got all the earmarks of a cheap crook. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook, and you killed him. For two cents, I'd change my mind and turn you in. I don't like you. <laughs> uh, the cinematographer Benjamin Klein got his. He's made his first film in 1920. So that's oh. where you get the. Uh, like the photography, the cinematography and film noir is directly taken from from silent film, where they direct your attention. There's no background. There's very little background to uh, distract you. There's either fog or it's black or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and his son also became a cinematographer. Uh, uh, Richard Richard Klein. He did Camelot, the '76 King Kong, and Silent Green. I feel. Do you guys feel like now that we don't really have the B picture, we've lost something in a way? No, we, we have Netflix. Plenty of B stuff on there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I forget that, that Netflix is terrible when it comes to original films. But it's serving the same purpose. It is, yeah. But I don't know. I don't know. I I miss the, you know, whatever you want to call it, like the detective movie or like just the crime movie. That was just all about, you know, you saw this a lot in the 70s, a lot about atmosphere, a lot about 
tone, a lot about sort of immersing you in the environment in which that movie is taking place. Um, and, you know, you have stuff that comes up. I mean, stuff like, um, I mean, it's not, I don't know, it's not a B movie, but even like uh, Held in High Water or Wind River or even yeah, Sakari. Yeah. I, I know I'm talking about Taylor Sheridan, basically. I I really love his work, Taylor Sheridan, by the way. Yeah, no, I do. I do as well. Awesome. And that's kind of what it reminds me of. Yeah. Um, so I do miss it, miss sort of that a little bit. I wish there's a little more of that, but that's just my own personal taste, I think. But yeah, I... Uh, I think it is missing a little bit. I think we've experienced the death of the adult drama as far as theaters go. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's way off. That's going to head us right off topic, but (laughs) yeah, (laughs) (laughs) recurring topic. Here we go off the road. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just make it a quick detour. Um, (laughs) I feel like the B movie now has become a way to describe just really crap films. You know, like Hmm. Sharknado, uh, most of the stuff that I found was, you know, those dreadful sort of uh, piranha and uh, just uh, Troll 2 or something, you know, just really bad films that I, I don't really think are associated to what I think as the B-movie, I always found the B-movie to be that sort of noir um, or sort of a gangster pick or, you know, those like the cat people, those sort of creature films, you know. Yeah. Uh, and nowadays, I feel like the term B-movie has become lost in a way and has now become sort of a way to just describe low-budget films, which are pretty shit yeah it's just it's evolution the media the medium has changed for b movies that's all i i I believe anyway well yeah i guess like like we're saying netflix now is probably where the the smaller pictures are getting made um simply because netflix has the money and resources to invest in in those pictures getting made but you know in those in those filmmakers and writers and actors who can't get it get it on with the big studios yet mm. that, that's that's why i mean you mind keep mining netflix and you're going to come up with gold yeah i i mean i mostly feel like netflix gets when there's a bad film it gets talked about quite a lot but when there is a really good film it just doesn't get the attention netflix has a crap load of money I mean, they have so much money, and they could develop these stories. They could really make good movies if they – I'm sorry. <laughs> I feel like saying if they cared to. Um, but that's why I don't really buy that because that argument, the, the B-movie came out of a financial you know, uh, limitation. It came out of not having all the resources that sort of the, the A-movie did or, or you know, where the studio decided to direct its money. And so I don't, I don't really – I don't like that argument that much because it just feels like, okay, Netflix, you have all this money. How about you make something good? You know, because that's but the B movie studios out there don't have that opportunity. Anyway, I'm sorry. The, Go ahead. The B movie studios they had plenty of money too. They just weren't handing it out. Um, they were okay. they were just providing opportunity, which I think is what Netflix is doing as well. Yeah, yeah. and actually, the B movies ended up making more money than. Their, their budgets often when you think that because they were so yeah well when you think they're being sold 
alongside a, a film that's definitely going to be seen by people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is built for the right size for television. I mean, for instance, uh, this one we just saw, one, one hour and seven minutes, there's 20 minutes of commercial space in there. Yeah. Do, do you have any sort of favorite B films? Not films about for a, I guess for a variety of reasons. I think back on, like, uh, what was that one with Shelley Winters? Mama's Boys. With a young upstart named Robert De Niro. Oh. Who's a gangster <laughs> film. That was American International. Of course, Boxcar Bertha. Mm, yes. Hmm. Which introduced Barbara Hershey. Yeah. Uh, what was, there was, an, was it Hell's Angels as well? The sort of. Uh, Look at Strider. There's a perfect example yeah. of a B movie that smashed the box office. Yeah, exactly. And that again, that was a film that was made uh, on be- for barely anything and picked up. And you know, the the studios weren't really sort of expecting much. And then it sort of changed the course of history, really, in terms of cinema. Yeah, it did. It did. I think it was a it was a really a key factor in, in what was happening. Yeah, I liked. Um, I mean, from when I was very little, uh, the day the Earth stood still was a movie that really uh, I thought was very impactful. I don't know if it fits under the B movie uh, umbrella, but that's definitely one that um, has stayed in my mind for a long time. But yeah, I don't I don't know that I've I don't know that I've seen a lot of B like specifically B movies. Um, okay. Because so much of because so much of like what I love like out of the late sixties and seventies I think comes out of that whether it's like you know Bonnie and Clyde or, um, you know some of the just some of the crime movies uh, in the seventies. So, well, uh, I suppose I just I'll just name a couple of my favorites. Um, yeah, Night of the Living Dead is is a B movie um, mm-hmm. in terms of its budget. It's you know lack of um, a big uh, professional cast, and uh, you know how it was sold, and it, you know, <laughs> it was sort of sold as being a sort of, uh, a, you know, this sort of cult status. You know, having this shocking sort of film that will, uh, I think, was shown to children, and then the cinemas realised that oh, we sh- probably shouldn't have this being shown at like 10 o'clock in the morning for little kids. It was a big drive-in hit in the it's late 60s, right? 67, yeah. 68? Yeah, it was a huge hit at the drive-ins. And of course the drive-ins is where a lot of these B-films sort of were, were shown. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and then also the Cat People, the original Cat People is a, a B-movie. And I love that movie. That's a, such a good film. Beautiful little cat. And it's just the way it's shot and the way it looks is just like nothing I really saw and I think it was like when I was a kid I watched it on TV and it was gripping and far more scarier than anything I've seen up until that point (laughs) and also one of my favorite films is The Incredible Shrinking Man and that would class as a B picture as well and that is a great film Um, I love it and um, I was surprised to see like find out that these films were classed as B pictures. So um, it's when you I think over time, I, over time, the really good ones sort of shed that that label. Mm. 
Yeah. Don't you? Yeah. Like Easy Rider and Cat People, like they're they go from B movie to classic. Yeah. One um, step. And I think that's great because regardless of their budgets, um, you know, their lack of stars, they they be- take on a whole new meaning, and that you know they become something that's revolutionary and have sort of you know, status in in cinema history. Yeah, and that's that again. That comes from the opportunity that something like the factory that produces the B movie, whatever it happens to be, mm. um, gives them the opportunity to do that. Yeah, and um, I think it kind of it's a bittersweet kind of thing, though, isn't it? Like at the time that these films weren't really appreciated. They're like pulp comics, I think. You know, on the screen. Um, I mean, certainly you have, you know, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and, you know, um, you know, I, even something like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, yeah. I don't know that it's technically a B-movie, but that kind, of, like, that kind of thing is exactly why the remake in the 70s is, like, yeah. absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I mean, and so, I, yeah, I just, I love it. Um, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a little easy to be like, oh, uh, like, teenagers in the 50s probably love these movies you know or something but um yeah it's just there's a lot of monster movies there's a lot of like out you know science fiction kind of uh, stuff so it's it's a fun genre absolutely i think that about 60 percent of tarantino's dna is from a b movie yeah, yeah. well it's amazing that they've uh, you can definitely see the influence it's had on on directors you know we're saying about the 70s but you know even directors now look at sort of Edgar Wright he's clearly been influenced by B pictures but Mm -hmm. you know they might not know that they've been influenced by B pictures they might be influenced by directors from the 70s who've been influenced by B films from the 30s and 40s it's amazing how it sort of all leads up how cinema is one of these things that just keeps evolving and changing. What got us on this subject anyway? We'll be discussing politics next. Well, I thought we could go on to sort of discuss Detour. Um, yeah. Uh, if anyone wants to watch it, it's on YouTube. It's, you know, it's like we were saying, it has a runtime of just over one hour. And it's really, it's actually really, really good. I, I watched it in, I think in universities when I was doing film studies and um, I was just sort of hooked Uh, so I've watched it quite a few times now just I don't know it's just like such a film that I can sort of put on and I know it's only going to be an hour and a half less than an hour and a half really and I'm going to enjoy myself even even though like I've seen it a few times I know what's going to happen in the end I still find myself enjoying it because of just how great it the dialogue is how great the performances are like what they they do in terms of having a restricted budget and what they kind of manage to do to overcome that so it's definitely a film that i think people should check out and like i say it's readily available on youtube so it's a, a 1945 film that stars tom neal and Anne savage uh, I mentioned earlier, its writer was uh, Martin Goldsmith, who actually adapted this picture from his novel. 
Um, Tom Neal is uh, plays a character called Al, who's uh, a bit of a down and out piano player who decides to go to California t- in order to marry sort of girlfriend who's who's left to go to Hollywood in order to you know find find fame and fortune. Uh, however, he can't really get there um, any other mu- way apart from hitchhiking across America. And uh, America is a pretty big country. I think he starts off in New York, doesn't he? So yeah. <laughs> that's one one massive long journey um, to get to the. Other and somehow side. ends up down in Arizona. <laughs> yeah. I know, it's really bizarre, isn't it? Like, I was trying to work it out. I, I got a bit confused about the ge- geography. Um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, so he ends up getting a lift from a, a guy called Charles Haskell, um, who is, luckily, is driving to LA. And um, they, they drive together. Haskell's a bit of a, I guess he's a con man, really. Uh, just, you know, he's a bit suspicious. He's a bit of bit of a sleazy character uh but you know he buys al uh lunch and everything lets him drive the car while he goes to sleep and it starts raining and al pulls over to put the roof up on the car um and trying to wake up uh haskell he opens the door and haskell tumbles out knocking his head on a rock he's dead you know i'm not giving away any spoilers here uh, <laughs> so knowing that like the police won't believe him about this sort of incident I do, it's all told through voiceover uh, and flashbacks so whether we're getting a full side of the story I don't know um, possibly we're, we're not but we'll discuss that in a minute anyway Al panics hides the body and drives off in the car. He later ends up picking up a hitchhiker called Vera, who is played by Anne Savage, who is uh, savage by name, savage by nature. Say, who do you think you're talking to, Eric? Listen, mister, I've been around, and I know a wrong guy when I see one. She's brilliant. I love her. Um, She's quick to suss out that the car isn't his, because she uh, also got a hitchhike ride from Haskell a few days back, or it's never really established how long ago that was, but um, she says that she'll stay quiet as she sort of gets the money from selling the car, but then uh, she decides to go with another plan, but uh, that involves Al being Haskell for a little longer. And that's it, I don't want to give away any more to the plot, but um, I really liked it, like just how it went, like it was just kept going, like the speed of the film uh, really sort of just didn't stop to have any moments where nothing really was happening plot-wise. And I thought that was, you know, obviously reflecting on its short runtime. But I thought it was quite good in terms of, like, how much went on in the space of everything. And like I said, I, I liked how we're seeing it from his perspective. So is he a reliable narrator? Probably not. I don't think that the death really went the way that he said, but you know that's what's interesting about the film is that you could sort of go away and think, oh, yeah, maybe we're being told a whole web of lies, but I don't know what what was your reaction to the film? Yeah, I I actually um, 
have a have a slightly different take. I actually just believe him. I just outright <clears throat> outright do believe um, Al because we're we're with him almost. We're with him the entire movie. We are kind of right there in his head, and he himself knows that he didn't commit it. You know what I'm saying? He he know, like you know what I'm saying. He and he could be in denial, I guess, but. I I just believe him because I I sympathize with him I guess being on the run being on you know sort of almost being reduced to an animalistic sense of like defensiveness you know he's so he's so, he just doesn't trust anybody he's trying not to leave you know footprint of where he is you know from the very first scene in the diner um but it's his mistrust of people it's his cynicism that ultimately leads him down this almost fatalistic path you know, and it's and it's funny because I um, I actually don't think dissimilar to this character um, when it comes to you know circumstances and situations. You and don't so, trust anyone. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, but no, no, but seriously, it's like I get so I get that, and that's why it was so heartbreaking. Was that it was like you tried to just sit, you were just trying to survive, and it ended up you know actually leading you down this dark path. Like, how much bad luck can one person have? I know. Right, exactly. There's one recent film where, where the character arc is almost the same, and that is Inside Lewin Davis. Oh, I haven't seen it, because I, I just I heard this. He manages to take the wrong, make the wrong choices every single time. Oh. <laughs> and circumstances turn around and bite him right in the ass. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was Sounds think- like the Odyssey. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, uh, in terms of contemporary films it made me think a little bit of you were never really here in terms of that like bad luck like oh my god i can't believe this is happening to this character like jesus Mm. just like this guy never gets a break like he literally um tries to go and make his life better by finding his you know to go live with his sort of uh, singer girlfriend who's clearly just kind of got rid of him and I think she's she's escaped him in order to make a better life for herself but he's a bit of a sap um, <laughs> <laughs> and then he gets caught up in, in something I mean I don't know like I say that's what I find quite interesting is that the fact that we have the voiceover and we see it from his perspective but how reliable is he? I, I don't know, but... Hmm. but it, I would think he'd have no reason to lie <laughs> at that yeah. point. Right. Oh, that's, yeah, that's true. And without trying not to spoil anything, it was an example of one of his bad choices had to do with a telephone oh, and yeah. on a telephone cord. And I'm sitting here saying, pull it out from the wall. Pull it out from the wall. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he made the wrong choice and didn't. <laughs> And, yeah, I, I kind of liked how that scene sort of built up, um, you know, where they're in the hotel room. Yeah, that scene was great, though, between the two actors in the hotel room. I really liked um, this, the scenes, the the, uh, the aesthetic of the scenes where they're, they, they show Al's face, but the, there's only, like, light mm-hmm. on his eyes. Yes, and I love the face. I I just love those. I mean, I don't know if, if that's just like, I'm sure that's been duplicated time and time and time again, but I, I just, I really loved it. It really stood out to me. Um, that's very and, smart. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's directing very, your attention right into the right into his soul. Yeah, like we're <laughs> saying uh, about uh, how the cinematographers were coming from the the silent era. Um, there's mm. a lot of German expressionism. Don Quixote. <laughs> German expressionism. Thank you. Another thing I enjoyed was the uh, the style of dialogue which you found in that period, which is it's very clipped. There's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of talking, and a lot of use of, uh, of uh, metaphors. Yeah. Tough talk. Well, let's talk about the performances. So we sort of spoke briefly about um, Tom Neal. Uh, who plays a sort of main guy, uh, the, you know, the wrong man, the the man on the rung. Um, he was a former boxer. Yes, I, I found that out. And I also found out something quite disturbing, that um, yeah. he was convicted of uh, manslaughter for killing his third wife. That's right. And he was also blackballed for um, beating up Superstar franchise tone over a uh, hooker at a party. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Wow. It's like. But I, I, he's very expressive. Mm. I found him, him pretty good. Yeah, and like you were saying, like um, when we see that close up in, in the diner at the beginning and his sort of vacant look, you know, it's like looking into the eyes of a man who's just given up on life. I found it, his performance very powerful, even though he st- doesn't really say much, really. It's mostly um, Anne Savage who does a lot of the talking. <laughs> <laughs> and um, She's great. I loved her. Like, I was saying like uh, to Rob just before we started the podcast, like her facial expressions, like when they're in the car, when they first get into the car, and she just gives them that stare. I thought she was fairly, uh, I don't know, one note. She didn't have much of a, an arc. She was mean at the beginning and mean right up at the very end. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't a lot. Her performance was really good, though. I mean, just in terms of being that kind of mean. I just remember the line um, where he says, um, he asks her in the car, I was like, where are you from? And she's like, oh, Phoenix. And uh, he says, oh, sure, Phoenix. You look like a Phoenix girl. And she replies back with, are girls in Phoenix that bad? Right. It's, like... <laughs> it's just like that. those witty like lines that she comes back with. They're sort of like quips. That... Self-deprecating, yeah. Yeah. Uh... There were lots of great lines. You're not much of a talker, are you? My mother taught me never to speak to strangers. Oh, wise guy. So what? Okay, okay, don't get sore. He's trying to be sociable, that's all. Hey, glamorous. You change for a dime, will you? And I'm I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite books, and it goes, um, "It's what you don't know that matters most." And so he's sitting in the car, he sees the scratches, he doesn't put it together in time though, mm. and he's sort of I don't want to say doomed by that, but yeah, he kind of is. The cinematography matching the dialogue because there's a lot that you don't see because it's a noir style. Mm. Yeah, and yep. I think the the there's some great moments that they get they get away with not showing you stuff. Yeah. Um, one of my favourite moments is when, I know it sounds a bit weird, when he's in a motel room and he's having that sort of dream, like uh, there's that bit of a musical number featuring his uh, girlfriend, and then he oh, yeah. wakes up and you 
see the shadow of the maid who's come to yes yeah and she looks That's huge nice. it's like gigantic and he sends her away and i guess that they didn't have to open the door and show you the maid or you know even show the the back like the window open it's all done through shadow and it just obviously it's a budget thing but they've been creative with it and they've created this feeling like everybody is out to get him even a maid coming to clean up the room could potentially be the one to cause his downfall yeah that shot was a beauty it was that was gorgeous yeah and i think as well we said uh the angles the camera angles were used to great effect as well as like that low angles where everybody looks sort of like skewed and um, disfigured in a way like their features all sort of made to look longer and more sinister and uh, it really created the atmosphere of the film I think it's really easy to belittle a movie and take it apart because it's got a low mm-hmm. budget and sure. I, I see that happening time and time again with a lot of critics that I read you know reviews about and when I came to sort of become try and become more professional and and take this Mm -hmm. up and become more of a professional critic i was quick to say oh well i'm just going to watch a a film and and uh, not judge it by its budget really and i've watched some i've watched some really low budget films but i've you know films that literally have no budget at all and i thought well um it's not Yes, it's easy to to say. Well, they, you know, it looks bad. The scenery looks bad. The locations are really awful. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's not really, you know, we're so used to watching polished films in the cinema nowadays that we. It's forget. not crucial to your enjoyment that it looks like a million dollars. Yeah, and a lot of the time, I think you were saying like it shows how creative the the director is that they can sort of overcome these limitations and do something creative and and memorable that stands out yeah and that limited visual that limited visual aesthetic is still an an art form i think because that itself becomes sort of is this beautiful thing that but it but it's beautiful for other reasons then you know something might be beautiful because it costs a hundred million dollars but it's like well it can be completely empty too you know it can be beautiful in a really sort of vapid way um, but this is beautiful in a, you know, th- there's the person behind the camera, there's focus, there's intent, there is um, insistence, you know, of a story being told. And uh, beca- yeah, I guess because, you know, we've gone through film history, at least we can appreciate that. So um, that's what, to me, that's what com- kind of comes to mind with that is that, you know, it is beautiful, but it's just beautiful in a different way. Hmm. That's a good point. And, um, what did you think? I, mean, I don't want to give the ending away, but what did you think about the ending? If we can not try and spoil it for people, I'm not sure because I thought it was more of a metaphor than an actual reality. You know what I'm saying? It was more of the idea of some of, uh, you know, uh, his past catching up to him. You know, uh, are you as a as that a haunting. That doesn't really happen, like the ending, right? Right. Yeah, I was okay. thinking the same thing. That it's almost as though it's an expectation that he has in his head that this is what's going to happen. Because that's the whole movie is his sort of 
that mindset of like doom and pessimism and sort of believing that you know <laughs> the world Without is a dead spiral. end. <laughs> Had you heard of this movie before, or was this sort of new going into it? I hadn't heard of it, no. No, I hadn't heard of it either. But when I looked up the people involved in it, then, yeah, I've seen some of their other work. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's nice. I'm glad that I managed to sort of find a film that nobody had heard of. <laughs> we got a chance to watch it. I mean, well, I, I think... That, We've sort of covered the beef picture. I mean, we sort of spoke briefly about it. Um, I'm keen to do more about the beef film and write about it. For it be, it's quite interesting. It's a part of cinematic history that I think often gets overlooked or doesn't really get appreciated enough. Um, like would make a great series. It would be good if you could call attention to some of these. Mm. Yeah, especially one to write about detour because you know we've discussed it, but there's so much I. I haven't really, we haven't really gone into depth, and so maybe that's something we can do. I, I don't know. I'll have to speak to the the big, big boss man. Big cheese. <laughs> yeah, big cheese. <laughs> I do want to mention something real quick. Um, I do want to say that you know the superhero movie, the superhero genre, you know, does have origins in the B B picture. You know, <laughs> and so they're just very expensive B pictures. Exactly, you know, and most and so of them not particularly well done B pictures. <laughs> exactly, no, exactly, and I mean, I look. My favorite movie growing up was Tim Burton's Batman, and I mean, oh, yeah, to me, that that, that is a great B B picture. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It's just a, it's even back then that was a super expensive movie. But most of the most of most of those now they don't have they don't have the the plot the detour had. No. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I wanted to say, too, is that, you know, this is a simple story, but it's yep. told so effectively and it's executed so well. And we that is so rare mm. in, yes. in most commercial movies now. And, and the dialogue um, and the interactions between the characters is just great. Like, it's great. Yeah. just wonderful dialogue that just, you know, will have you sort of l- laughing and and. and gasping in all the right places and I don't think the there's films like Detour being made now and, and that's mm-hmm. kind of a shame um, I would I really like this type of film I, yeah. I just always have done I think the film noir has always been something that I've been drawn to I don't know why, maybe it's because I'm a pessimistic gloom <laughs> gloomy guts <laughs> If you haven't seen Inside Lewin Davis, see it immediately after seeing Detour. And is okay. that, isn't that a Coen Brothers picture? It is. I, I'm yes. just writing a thing up on it. Yeah, because we've got, um, just so listeners know and readers to our site, um, we will be having the Coen Brothers Week soon, which is a, a sort of like we've done with Scorsese and, and Christopher Nolan beforehand, is sort of a week dedicated to their work. That's really exciting, and their work is obviously they've been. Inf- I would say that they've probably been influenced by the B picture as well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Miller's Crossing, which I just saw earlier this year, was amazing. Like I thought it was great. I mean, that's that's absolutely has its tropes in the gangster picture. Um, Barton Fink, uh, mm-hmm. which is a really underrated release by them, which I'm writing a piece on, um, certainly has its its you know, well, maybe not in the B picture, but certainly. 
certainly in the past. They, but um, they even take on the B movie with uh, Hail Caesar. Was one of the ones yeah. that I did. Ah, I haven't go. seen that one yet. So oh, you have? I haven't. Hysterical. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. <laughs> oh wow! Oh, I gotta watch it. It's it's it didn't get the the play that it deserved, but it is so damn funny. Oh, perfect. Well, this is, um, I'm quite excited for that, and I hope people check us out. I mean, you can always find us on filmotomy.com. And um, we've, we're covering now World Cinema, which is sort of coming to an end on that. And we've got the Cannes uh, Festival sort of recap going on, uh, which is going and to be great. And 1983. Yes. <laughs> the worst year in film, yeah. Yeah. But... <laughs> Um, there are some gems that we found. I certainly yeah, found true. some. And, uh, true. Yeah, true. I think that's a misnomer. I don't think it's the worst year in film. Oh, it just okay. goes to show that even a bad year, you can still get good movies. So, you go. true. You know, you just have to dig a little bit deeper because there's a lot more. Look at all these teasers we're throwing out to people. I know. Aren't we great? We're, like, getting them prepared. This is, like... This is like the B B picture bit of the podcast, getting you ready for the next A feature. So, you know, next we're going to have a newsreel. Um. (laughs) We bored each other with conversation for a couple of hours longer. Every five minutes, one of us was wishing we had another bottle or a radio or something to read. Then finally, we ran out of chatter. 